I study engineering in college. My freshman year workload was、uh, math, physics, computer science, writing intensive course. And I thought, oh man, I need to do something different. Maybe I'll take a PE course. You know, do something with exercise kind of thing. So、um, I signed up for a class called Hapkido,、uh, only PE class that actually fit my schedule. And、uh, I had no idea what Hapkido was. <laughs> Some kind of martial arts thing, I think. So my first my first day, I got there into the gym, and you know I put on some kind of this white thing. It's kind of like called a gi, and then we started for the next two weeks to throw ourselves to the ground. <laughs> I just fall to the ground, and I, I need to slap the mat as I land on the ground. Supposedly, it dissipates the impact of the fall. Of the fall, right? After a couple of weeks of falling to the ground and slapping the mat, they started teaching us some kind of a wrist control thing, like like twisting the wrist to control the other person. And I got to tell you, at this point, I was kind of getting bored. I was like, <laughs> "Is this really all there is to Hapkido?" Okay, now you got to remember, this is before internet. You couldn't just go online and you know go to YouTube and type in Hapkido and then you know see all these great videos. Didn't exist back then. So I was thinking about dropping the class. Well then, one day I walked into the gym, and instead of you know lining up to do our warm-ups, we sat around the mat. Because our teacher, a hapkido master, invited a friend of his who is also a hapkido master, and they gave us a demonstration. Whoa! Whoa! I mean, the fluidity of the motions, complex techniques, gravity-defying throws, and every time it hit the ground. They slap the mat, okay, and we're like, we know how to do that. We know how to do that. Okay, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. Oh my gosh, to see what hapkido at the highest levels like up close, personal, and watching that, I decided not to drop the class. I started working hard on the techniques I was learning. Now, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to keep up with hapkido because next semester, the schedule doesn't fit anymore. But that demonstration. Getting that chance to get a glimpse of what hapkido is really like at the very highest level inspired me. Now, here at Blackhawk Church, we often talk about how following Jesus is a journey, right? Making the decision is step one, and then there's a lifelong journey of transformation. And along that journey, I think we can get a little like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I'm not sure what's happening. Like. What am I being transformed into? Today is kind of a demonstration. Today we're going to hear from somebody who is further down the road, and he is going to give us a glimpse of what following Jesus ultimately looks like. And my hope is that today you will be inspired. Now. This is the seventh sermon in the ten-part series we're doing on the Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Paul is writing to a church he planted. He knows them. They know him. He loves them. They love him, and he's writing to them to get them to love each other more and to love God more. And today we're starting a brand new section,、um, chapter three, verses one through sixteen. And、uh, if you have your Bible, go there.、Um, but we're going to do something a little weird. I'm going to start at the end of the passage, verse fifteen. All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Now, now Paul says, look, mature Christ followers should think a certain way. 
Hmm. Now, so here's why I put these two verses in front. Because Paul is actually being very specific about describing a group of people. He's saying, look, there are people who are mature Christ followers, and they're going to think a certain way. Which way is that? Well, that's verses 1 through 14. We're going to go there. Okay? But what I want to point out is there is this group, and then there are other people who are not there. And Paul says, that's okay. No worries. No worries. It's okay. You know, because God will help you. God will clarify things for you. You will grow. And, but make sure you live up to what you have already learned. So first thing we learned today, already there already. First thing we learned today, there is such a thing as maturity in following Jesus. Now, if you, if you view Christianity as that it's all about salvation, it's all about, you know, getting your ticket punched for heaven, and if you think it's about being saved, you know, by grace through faith, that, that means that, you know, all of us are in the same boat and really talking about maturity is kind of a waste of time. But here at Blackhawk, we believe that following Jesus is so much more than that. We believe that it is a recovery of that call to image God, to become Christ-like. That means every one of us is on a different place in that journey, which means there absolutely are mature Christ followers. So today we're going to get a glimpse of what that is like. And so today, uh, the talk is rated M for mature. Okay, let's go to verse one. Um, Paul starts at the beginning. He says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, what is Paul talking about? Okay, so we do have a problem here, okay? Paul, in these three verses, is addressing probably the most controversial issue in the church in the early decades, um, and it is an issue that we today, we absolutely do not care about. And so this is why we always say the Bible is not written to us, before us. Paul is writing to Christ followers in the middle of the first century. And what was roiling the churches in those decades? It's the question of Gentiles. The question of non-Jewish people. Can they follow Jesus? And if so, how? Some of you are going like, What? Right? How is that even a question? That's a nonsensical question for us. But for them, ooh, huge debate. Okay, now let's think why. why. Why might that be the case? Well, let's think about this. Jesus, Jewish. His title is Christ, which translates the Jewish term Messiah, which means the Jewish king of the world. All 12 disciples, Jewish. All the early Christ followers, Jewish. They read the Jewish Bible. There was no New Testament at the time. They read the Jewish Bible that prophesied about Jesus. Now, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, um, open the door of God's people to Gentiles, to the non-Jews. Right? Invite them in to become children of Abraham. Obvious question. Shouldn't they have to become Jewish to follow Jesus? Shouldn't they have to, you know, adopt Jewish regulations? You know, like, get circumcised, keep the Sabbath, eat kosher. Shouldn't they do those things 
so that they can actually be the children of Abraham. It was a huge debate, ferocious debate. And Paul was smack dab in the middle of this. Paul was fierce, okay? Paul made this argument. He said, Gentiles, not only don't they have to become, uh, become Jewish to follow Jesus, they absolutely should not, should not become Jewish to follow Jesus. And Paul won the debate, which is why today we don't really think about this. Like today, let's say, let's say you make a decision to follow Jesus and, and you, know, you go to the, the info desk out there in the atrium and you're like, hey, I just follow, I decided to follow Jesus. And they're like, congratulations, okay? Nobody there is gonna say, hey, can we schedule your circumcision? How's next Tuesday looking for you? <laughs> Nobody's gonna say that, okay? So just be rest assured. <laughs> Nobody's gonna say that. So this passage right here, Paul's not writing to us, but it is for us. So what I wanna do is I wanna walk through this passage, just get a sense of what Paul's saying, but I wanna make sure we understand how it cashes out for us, all right? So Paul starts with, this is a safeguard. You see, he's writing to a church that's mostly Gentile, mostly non-Jews. But it's, it didn't seem to be a problem, right? This doesn't seem to be a problem. It hasn't caught on. But he says, look, I want to, I want to make sure, I want to prevent anything catching on. So I want, I want to be preventative. I'm, in fact, I'm going to say this over and over again to you because it's so critical, okay? I'm going to say it over and over again to you. And, and, but then Paul is obviously very passionate about this, right? He calls those people who are trying to get them to be circumcised, he calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers. He calls them mutilators. Oh, Right? And then he says to a bunch of Gentile believers, it is we who are the circumcision. What does that mean? Okay, so remember I said earlier that this talk is rated M for mature? Yeah, we're going to talk about circumcision a little bit. So <laughs> in the Old Testament, God established, pardon me, in the Old Testament, God established circumcision as a ritual to mark God's people. So this physical mark on the male sexual organ of the children of Abraham marks them as God's people. That's the Old Testament. And now New Testament comes along and Paul says everything's changed. Everything's changed. And he writes to Gentile believers, men not circumcised, women who have never been circumcised, and they said, look, you are the circumcision. Okay? Because it is not physical circumcision that marks you as God's people. No, it's you boast in Christ Jesus and you have the Spirit of God. These two things mark you. Now, what does that mean to boast in Christ Jesus? Well, the Greek word for boasting in Christ Jesus is kakaomai, and it means to put one's future fullness, full trust and confidence in, in something. So Paul says to the Philippians, you put your faith in Jesus. You trust Jesus. You trust what he did for you on the cross. And at that moment, you are joined with Jesus. You're united with Jesus. You're in Christ, which means you're given the spirit of God, which means you have the markers of what it means to be the people of God. You are the circumcision. Now, this isn't just for mature Christ followers. Actually, this is rated E for everyone because every single person here those of us who are Christ followers, we are the circumcision. I know that sounds really weird. 
<laughs> that whole thing sounds real. Okay, I had this a great idea. I, I thought it was a great idea. I, I thought I want to get everybody in all the room, all the sides to, to say we are the circumcision. Say it out loud. <laughs> I thought it was going to be great. I went to the teaching team and they said, no, Charles. <laughs> Bad idea, Charles. <laughs> and I'm like, but we're quoting the Bible. Come on. They said, no. So if you really want to, on your drive home, go ahead and shout it, okay? <laughs> okay. But I want you to do it because I want you to remember this. We who put faith in Jesus, we have received the Holy Spirit. Those two things mark us as God's people. We are the circumcision. And that's a good thing. Now, Paul then say, okay, those of us who are Christ followers, we don't put confidence in the flesh, unlike those people. Now, what does Paul mean by the flesh? The Greek word is sarx. And in Paul's writing, he uses that word in two different ways. One is, uh, he refers to physical body. You know, like in, you know, it's just a flesh wound, you know. <laughs> Monty Python fans, love it. Okay, good. <laughs> we have some in the church. Okay, and then, um, and then the other meaning of Sarks is humanity in its broken state. Right? Humanity under the power of sin and death, basically without Christ, without the Holy Spirit. So in this passage, Paul's really doing a wordplay. He's saying, look, those people, those people who want to get you circumcised, they put their confidence in the flesh. They put their confidence in the physical body, right? Get circumcised, and you're now right with God. Get circumcised, and now you're the people of God. But Paul says, here's the problem. When you put your faith in Sark's, the physical body, what you're really doing is you're reverting back to a way of life, a way of spiritual faith that's focused on this type of spirituality. It is to pursue God without Jesus, without the Holy Spirit, to try to be God's people outside of Christ. And Paul says, look, you know, when it comes to trying to pursue God without Jesus, I did it. I absolutely nailed it. I was good. Okay, next verse. He says, Though my, I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons for confidence in the Sarks, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul says, look, circumcised exactly the right day, according to Jewish regulations. P- right parents... Right lineage? Oh, better than that. Benjamin tribe, one of the better ones. Seriously, look at him in the Old Testament. It's one of the better tribes. A Hebrew of Hebrews. I am Jewish all the way. That's just how I was born. Let's get into how I lived, okay? I was a Pharisee, which meant I studied Jewish regulations. I knew it backwards and forwards. In fact, I pushed other Jews to follow Jewish regulations. I was so passionate for God. I had such passion and zeal for God that I actually persecuted the church because I thought they were, they were, they were misleading people. They, 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 they said somebody who died on the cross is the Messiah. That was nonsense, I thought. Oh, and one more thing. Righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. Now, we need to pause here a little bit um, because that word right there, righteousness, yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated. 
And when I mean complicated, I mean that 500 years of theologians arguing about that word, and they are not done yet. Uh, <laughs> so um, instead of spending the next three hours explaining the various view on the word righteousness, I'm just going to tell you what I think, <laughs> and we'll go from there. The uh, Greek word for righteousness is dikaiosune. And the underlying meaning of dikaiosune is a state of rightness, the way things should be. And so what Paul is saying is, he says, look, there is a right way of life, a rightness of life that comes from following the Jewish laws. Like when you follow Jewish laws, it shapes you. It makes you into a certain kind of person. And Paul says, when it comes to that way of life, okay, I was faultless. I nailed it. I reached the pinnacle, the absolute pinnacle of the kind of person a person who the light can be when following the Jewish laws. I went as far as it is possible down that road. And then everything changed. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Here, Paul starts talking about how mature Christ followers think. Now, here it goes. He says, look, once upon a time, the whole list of things, you know, circumcised on the eighth day, Benjamin tribe, being a Pharisee, faultless when it comes to following the law, I saw them as assets. I saw them as gains. I saw them as giving my life value. And then something happened. I met Jesus. I started to follow Jesus. And as I walked down that road of transformation, there was a drastic change in how I evaluated my life. The things that gave me value the things that gave me honor or status, the things that shaped me, that defined me, that influenced me, all those things begin to fade in their importance in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, the Greek word there for knowing is gnosis. And Biblical authors love to use this word to talk about personal, relational knowing, right? Not intellectual knowing, but it's like knowledge, knowledge between husband and wife, parents and children. It's Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's intimacy and devotion. Okay? The heart of following Jesus is knowing Jesus. And Paul says, I've reached that point in my journey where I consider knowing Jesus as being so amazing, so awesome, that everything else in my life, everything else that gave me worth, they start to drop in value. They start to go to zero. In fact, they went negative. Paul used the word scubalon to describe them. Now, the NIV translates that as garbage, and um, it's not quite the right translation, even though I know why they did it. Um, you see, scublone is a vulgar word. It means excrement or manure, and you would not bring them up in polite society. But I get to come up here and say scublone, 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 because you're not first century Greek speakers, <laughs> and I'm quoting the Bible, so what are you going to do about it, right? <laughs> but... 
If I actually use the English equivalent, you all be offended, and、um, I get tons of emails and probably a conversation with the elder board. But in my defense, I did warn you this talk is rated M for mature. Okay. So, scoop alone refers to things that are worthless, that are filthy. So Paul says, "Man, those things in my life that used to give me worth, that, that made me think about who I am and that that's valuable, that gave me value, I see them as worthless and filthy." So we get to first thing we learn about mature Christ followers: they do not value the supposed assets in their lives. What are the assets in your lives? What do you value? What are things that give you worth, that define you, that make you go, "Yeah, I live a worthwhile life," right? That, that, that somehow shapes you, that influences you. Is it your body? Maybe you know the way you look, or maybe you're very athletic and you can like you know run a half marathon. Maybe it's your personality. You are really funny. You're really smart. You get all A's. Maybe you really get to talking with other people, and people like hanging out with you. Maybe it's your achievements. School, where you got a degree. Maybe you started a company from scratch, helped invent a medicine that's helping thousands of people, or you have multi-million-dollar net worth. Maybe it's a philosophy, a belief system that you bought into that helps you gain perspective and peace and coherence in your life. Now let me make something very, very clear. None of those things are bad. None of those things are wrong. But something weird happens when you decide to follow Jesus. You make that first step to follow Jesus. You join a church. You become part of a community. You you study. You learn. You serve. You connect. And somewhere along that journey, as you become more mature. Those things that give you worth in your life, they start to fade in your estimation until they become worthless to you. And the obvious question is, why? Why? Why should mature Christ followers not value the supposed assets in their life? The answer. Because mature Christ followers want to be shaped solely by the life of Jesus. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, the Jewish regulations, but that which is through the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, first thing you need to notice is that I made some changes. Okay,、and、you're like, wait, he's changing the Bible? No, okay. So, if you look down in the NIV footnote where it says a faith in Christ, if you look down in your footnote, it actually says or through the faithfulness of Christ. The NIV translation committee believe that both of these translations are legitimate. However, for many reasons I don't have don't have time to get into, I think this is the correct translation. So let's walk through it. See what Paul means by it. Paul says, "Look." I don't. I don't want. I don't want a rightness of life that comes from me, that comes from my doing things or my my following human regimen, human regulations. I don't want that kind of rightness of life. 
No, no, no. What I want is a rightness of life that is through the faithfulness of Christ, that is shaped by the life of Jesus, which can only come from God when I put faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, that's the life I want. I don't want anything else. You see, if you only want, if you only want the life that is shaped by Jesus, then everything else gets in the way. So mature Christians want to, see, want to be shaped by Jesus and only Jesus, nothing else. Now, what does that even mean? What does it mean to live a life that is shaped by Jesus? Okay, and we get to the amazing verse. Okay, verse 10, this is it. Okay, Paul says, you want to know what that means? I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I want to know Christ. And here he's getting beyond relational. It's not just relationship with Jesus. He says, no, no, I want the ultimate kind of knowing. I want the ultimate kind of knowing where I actually have the life of Jesus manifest in me. I want to experience this thing. Right? This, is, this is obviously not intellectual knowing. I want to experience this. I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean, Paul? Like, what does it mean to, to know, to, to, to experience this? Well, two things, right? First, resurrection. Second, suffering unto death. Resurrection, suffering unto death. The shape of the life of Jesus. Paul says, I want to know it. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to feel it. I want to manifest it in my life. Now, what does that even mean? Well, at minimum, at minimum, to have the power of God's resurrection in you means you no longer fear death. Think about that. The power that resurrected Jesus from the dead, that killed death, manifests in us, it means we do not fear death. Death is no longer concerned. You just don't think about it. You don't care about it. Paul says this in, 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 in chapter two of Philippians. Remember he said, to live is Christ, to die is, to die is gain. Gain, that, that word again. To die is an asset. To die is valuable. Why? Because Paul says, look, the most important thing I'm seeking after in my life is to know Jesus. And when I die, I get to see Jesus. So why would I not embrace the eventuality of death? But true Christians do not fear death, at minimum. Okay? But there's so much more than that. So much more than that. You see, the resurrection of Jesus in the story of the Bible isn't just about him. It marks the beginning of the final age, the final age in which the power of God comes into this world through his people, and, and, and through that power, transforms a broken, sinful, violent, corrupt world into the glorious kingdom of God, which means the power of Jesus' resurrection is the power that gives life to a world that is dead. To create beauty in places that are ugly and grotesque. To offer courage when there is fear. 
joy in the midst of profound sorrow and suffering. To provide meaning in a culture that is drowning in shallowness and triviality. To provide peace in the midst of war, hope in the midst of despair and healing for people who are wounded and in pain. That is the power of Jesus' resurrection. And Paul says, I want that. I want to experience that. I want to have that manifest in my life. I want that flowing out of me the way it flows out of Jesus. I want that. Now, we cannot forget, right? We cannot forget that Jesus' resurrection wasn't some kind of triumphal victory dance. No, 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 no. In the life of Jesus, the resurrection is paired with his suffering unto death. So Paul says, I want that too. I want to participate in his suffering. That suffering is self-sacrificial for the sake of others. Paul says, I want that. I want the shape of my life to be shaped by the life of Jesus. Mature Christians want to experience the power of Jesus' resurrection and participate in his suffering. How are you guys doing? I just want to make it clear, okay? I am not speaking from experience. <laughs> this is not me. Just absolutely clear. This is not me. What I'm doing today is I'm trying to be absolutely faithful to Paul's words. Paul is somebody further down the road, and he's talking to a bunch of people who some of them are close to where he is and many others who are not. And what he's trying to do is to give all of us a glimpse of what it looks like further down the road, what it looks like to, to become mature. And the hope is that you will be inspired. So how are we supposed to respond to this? Well, the first thing you don't do is to say, okay, I'm just going to go do this. All right? I'm going to gut it out, right? Okay, remember, you know, after the hop keto demonstration, if I had just jumped on the mat and said, okay, I'm going to do what, they, what I just saw, that would have been really dumb. I probably would have been seriously injured, okay? So no, 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 don't do that, okay? The response here isn't, oh, I need to treat everything as scuba alone. I, I need to pursue after suffering. No, no, no. So those of you who are like gung-ho types, just chill, okay? Chill. We don't jump straight there. This is part of a journey. So wherever you are in the journey, you need to take the next step to move forward, wherever you are. And, and, um, and what's great about this is, I want to go back to Paul because Paul is really good at encouraging us how to take the next step. So uh, Paul gives us a series of advice, starting in verse 12, on how to take the next step. Verse 12, Paul says, Not that I have already attained all this, obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. So Paul has not arrived. Paul's not there. He doesn't have it yet. So advice number one, don't think you've arrived. Are you further along than Paul? If not, why would you think you arrived? Do not become self-satisfied. Do not become complacent with where you are in your spiritual formation. Always be wanting more. Always be hungering for more. Now, notice this. Paul says, I press on. Paul's like, I'm going after it. I'm going after it. So spiritual formation and growth is something that you can go after. So advice number two, prioritize spiritual growth. 
Now, Paul, for Paul, moving to become Christ-like is his only goal in life. He says everything else is scuba alone. For us, we may not be there, but still, move it up in your list of priorities in your life. Invest time, invest energy into moving forward in your spiritual formation. And now this is where I just, I love Paul because he, he's just, he's so good at this. He says, look, he says, look, I'm pressing on, I'm straining to take hold of, of this life. Okay, I'm going like this, I'm going like this. And as I'm doing this, I realize something. I realize that, that Christ has taken hold of me. Amen. In fact, I'm pursuing this because Christ first pursued me. That is, a, that is a wonderful feeling, folks. It's a marvelous feeling. Because yes, we're pressing on. We're supposed to be pressing on. Yeah, we want this. But you know we're going to fail. You know we're going to get tired. You know we're going to go, ah, we don't do this anymore. And we're going we're gonna to let go. And it is when we let go that we realize that Jesus will not let go. And that's awesome. That is an amazing thing. Right? Which, which is advice number three. Look, don't worry about failure. Jesus has a hold of you. He will not let you go. Now, the hard thing about this, this whole thing about pressing on and moving forward is that I think so for so many of us, we've done things in our past and they just weigh on us. We feel like we have so much guilt, so much shame hanging over us. And we're like, I can't move forward on this. I, having Jesus' life manifest in me, not going to happen. That's ridiculous. Never going to happen. So we feel stuck. We don't move at all. Shame and guilt. Now, what do you think Paul would say to that? Paul's like, shame and guilt, you do realize that I actually put Christ followers in prison, right? You do realize that I actually helped people murder Christ followers. You want to talk about shame and guilt? But Paul says, here's what I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Paul says, forget the past. Don't live in guilt. Don't live in shame. Just forget about it, okay? None of what you've done in the past, they do not matter. None of it matters. The only thing that matters is what you do right now. Right where you are in your spiritual journey, right now, make a decision to move forward and go after the prize. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul calls it a prize. He calls it a prize. He calls, calls his way of life that's being transformed into the shape of Jesus. He says, that's a prize. It is the greatest life possible. I get to know Jesus. I get to have the relationship of intimacy and devotion. But more than that, I get to manifest the life of Jesus in me. I get to experience and know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering. I get to live a life that is Christ-shaped. That is the greatest possible life. It is the prize. Go after it. Amen. That's Paul's advice for how to get there. Let's quick summarize, quickly summarize. Mature Christians do not value the assets that other people seem to value in their lives. Why? Because they don't want those things shaping them. They want only the life of Jesus shaping them. And what does that look like? Well, one thing we know is that 
you stop being shaped by the fear of death. You just don't worry about it anymore. Because the power of the resurrection, the power that killed death is the power that's reshaping and bringing goodness and wholeness to this broken world. And mature Christians want that. They want that flowing out of their lives. And the price they're willing to pay, they're willing to participate in Jesus' suffering. They want to be shaped like this. And how do you get there? Don't be complacent, self-satisfied. Don't think you've arrived. Prioritize spiritual growth. Don't worry about failure. Forget the past and go for it. So where are you in your next step of your spiritual journey? Do you know what it is? Do you know where you are? Some of you, you need to learn more things. You, you need to be in, we have blackout courses, we have blackout Bible studies. You need to learn more. Some of you, you need to be in community. You need to connect with people. We have community groups of all sorts. Some of you, you need to dive into a deeper relationship with God. And we just did a whole sermon series this past summer called Summer Camp, in which we gave you all these different kinds of spiritual practices. If you want to adopt a couple of them, go back and check out that sermon series and put those and prioritize those into your schedule. But today I want to really recommend a tool that has helped many people. Uh, There's a link to a video on our church website, on our sermon resource page. It's a video that helps you understand where you are in your spiritual journey. It gives you kind of a way to talk about spiritual journey that might be very helpful. So I commend that to you. But whatever it is for you, you need to know your next step. How are you going to move forward? That's how we respond to this glimpse of this life. This life that is shaped by the life of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we, uh, we get a glimpse of what following Jesus can look like. Some of it is very, very, very challenging. <laughs> Some of it is like, wow, that's what it looks like? Yikes. And so we pray, but I think we're not sure what we're praying for, but we're going to pray that that becomes true in our life. So, Father, I want to pray. I want to pray that your shape of your son's life shapes my life. I want to get to a place where the things that I value about myself, I don't value them anymore. I want to get to a place where the things that influence me, define me, I don't find them useful anymore. I want to get to a place where I want Jesus. I want only you to shape me. Only you, Jesus, to be at the center, at the heart that structures and forms my life. Which means I, I don't want to live being afraid of death. And I, rather, I want to know the power that resurrected you. I want that power flowing through me. The power that's transforming this world, giving life where there's death giving peace where there's war, joy where there's sorrow. I want that life. And the next part, I'm not sure I want to pray for. And those of you who want to opt out right now, you can. (sighs) To get there, I know there is suffering unto death. 
that's shaped by your life. So I pray for that as well. All of this, because we want to become like you, Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.